Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. On today's episode of Autism Stories, Matthew Lawrence joins us to discuss being a life coach, the autistic experience in different countries, and what autistic joy means to him. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Matthew, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Doug. I want to start out like I do with so many of these episodes and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? So, it's a long story, as most people who tell this story is, but I would say that in the community, it would start around 2010. 2010, I, I moved to a new country, and while I had been diagnosed as a kid, and again in college, a secondary diagnosis for not believing the first one, which can be common of certain people born in the 1980s, I really felt myself being an immigrant in a new country and kind of burning out, you know? Culture shock, job shock. This is 2010, so during the financial crisis, so everything was just sort of ends economically, personally, and in the country. And I just felt myself burning out, and I needed help. And so I reached out to one of the local autism organizations to see how do I get help? How do I get assistance? How do I find a social worker that can help me deal with stuff? How can I find a good therapist? How can I get government benefits if they exist? I didn't know any of this stuff. You know, Growing up, I had never really engaged with the community at all didn't speak about being autistic with most people, only on an as-to-know, need-to-know basis. Never really was involved in the community. Was a, there was no community, you know? That wasn't part of my life, and that wasn't something that I was active in. And now I found myself wanting that help and reached out to the organization, and that was my first real opportunity to be sort of consciously socializing and talking and learning about the community. You know, I had had other autistic friends growing up that I knew from various, from, from school and from things, but this was the first time that I, as an adult, went out, found an organization, people helping each other, autistic people helping other autistic people navigate the system, and I thought that was really cool. And that was also my first sort of interaction, I guess, with the neurodiversity movement and really learning about autism. You know, I had always, up until then, and at that point, I guess I was 23, 24, don't remember exactly how old I was then. But, you know, I had looked at autism as someone who was born in the 1980s with a diagnosis of Asperger's. This was, as I was, that was how it was known then. And that was a pretty standardized experience for most people growing up in the U.S. with that diagnosis. And I never really engaged with it in a, in a positive or political or a communal way. And that was the first time. That was really exciting. And since then, I sort of... I dove right in into the community and meeting people, engaging with people, helping people, and that's how that's that's my story. Now there are there are many autistic adults who are outspoken about how ABA therapy wasn't helpful to them as a child, 
And in, in preparing to talk to you today, I read that you went through ABA therapy. So really wanted to learn what was that experience like for you? You know, ABA is certainly a topic that we talk about a lot in the community and it gets debated amongst people who went through ABA, people who were in ABA, autistic ABA technicians, even parents over the place. And so, I mean, I guess you asked the question, I, against ABA, I went through ABA as a child, from, I guess, from about the age of three or four till fifth grade. And, you know, at the time, I didn't even know what it was, right? You know, I didn't think, oh, great, I'm going to ABA therapy now. You know, I was just going to therapy or to group, right? And I didn't know that it was bad or, you know, I guess I think a lot of parents today don't know necessarily it's bad, right? You know, we, you know, a lot of us, we talk about it in the community that we all hate it and you shouldn't send your kids. I don't think that most parents are coming at it from that standpoint, right? I think that's, that's what the insurance tells them is covered. That's what everybody tells them is great, right? There's an education issue there. I don't think my parents were sending me there to be cruel. But that's where I was being sent. And, you know, as a kid, memories are always funny, right? Because it's hard to remember exactly how things went through. But I was never, you know, you know, we always we talk about a lot recently on social media about the Judge Rothberg Center and shocks and things like that. I didn't go through anything like that. But, you know, there was definitely, if I wouldn't tuck my shirt in or if I would get excited and jump up and down, you go go into the room and the lights would go out. If I were, you know, playing with the Play-Doh that they were giving me and I was playing with it too much or doing certain things or ripping up a napkin, you know, they would give you something to eat and they would have a napkin and then you know, oftentimes you know, people will play with the napkin and fidget with it and rip it up, crumple it. If that would happen, you know, then you're going to get that little Velcro put onto your wrist and attached to the board. And I didn't think anything of it at the time. You know, as I got a little bit older and it was annoying to me, I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think it was abusive at the time. But, you know, when you're seven, eight years old, what do you think about like that? You know, for me, the big takeaway is the kind of the fallout of it, right? This idea of like that you're, if you do something, there's going to be a punishment of being afraid of being punished. A big part of ABA is also is the technicians speaking to your parents and doing these at-home activities, things that they should do at home. You know, something that's really, that sticks in my head even today is, like a lot of autistic people, I like things being in straight lines, right? You know, when you have art up in your room when you're a kid, you have posters and things like that that you hang up of your favorite baseball player, or in my case, my favorite hockey players. And I had a poster which I didn't hang up straight. And I got upset. And in my anger, I ripped it down. And my parents spoke to the therapist about it. And they, they were told by her to, that I need to put it back up on the wall, sideways, not straight, with the scotch tape to put the poster back together so I could see the rip and see the scotch tape and see it cockeyed on the wall and get used to it. And it drove me crazy. You can imagine how that would make you feel as a nine-year-old kid having to look at this thing that makes you so upset and it also reminds you that oh you were angry you shouldn't have done that this is what happens when you're angry ruin things and that's something i feel today right like aba teaches you that you shouldn't have any boundaries you know that that you should do whatever you need to do to please other people and you know i'm a long time out of that but that's something that still sticks with me today and it's something that i work in my practice of helping other people get through and it's something that i myself always working on of, of getting rid of, you know, creating boundaries of their people, not always people-pleasing, not always being afraid that if I don't do X, that Y is going to happen to me. 
and it, it creates that fear, and that and it sticks with you. It causes trauma, and I don't think that's great. So, you know, I don't, you know, I, I understand the, the issue that parents have, and you know, I have friends who they have autistic kids, and they ask me, "Well, you went through this. How how do you feel about it?" And, you know, it's always a tough spot, right? Because you don't want to tell your friend, or even just people you don't know. Oh, you sent your kid to ABA? You're abusing your child. Because they don't see it that way. But for me, it's not just about the actual things that are happening in those sessions. It's about what done the fallout, as they call it, what that does to your mind overall, which is what ABA is trying to do, right? That's, in that case, they wanted to change the behavior by doing certain things to make you afraid. And I just think that's, for me, an inhumane thing. I'm supportive of it. And it takes a long time to get over it. But I think uh, I'm on a path, and I work on it all the time, and I help other people. Right? I don't think it's something you ever just truly get over. It's hard to deprogram yourself, whether you're autistic or holistic or any kind of thing. Right? Once you get into habits, you, they stick, and it takes time to go over them. Just hearing that story about the poster, and it didn't happen to me, and just us meeting for the first time, that emotionally affected me, I think, because... Like I've realized, especially in this last year, the word that's most important to me, probably a value that's most important to me is autonomy. And I think about a situation like that, and did they ever even like conceivably ask you like why like why that upset you? I, I don't know if you were too young at that point to even know, but just the, the autonomy of a situation like that. Well, yeah, they knew why I did it. For as long as I can remember, things need to be straight, they need to be in order, they need to be, and that's something that always, that always gets to me. You know, it's funny, I, I haven't met many autistic people that are obsessed with the lines being straight and with, with art on the wall being symmetrical as far as where the different lines are. You know, I know we care about order, but I've never really met so many people like that. And I've been recently watching this uh, Attorney Wu show on Netflix about the autistic. I, I, saw, I just finished the entire uh, series. Yeah. And so I thought that was very validating. I was like, oh, it's somebody who loves whales like me, who likes things in straight lines. Oh, so, wow. Uh, that was pretty cool for me. You know, there's a lot of issues with the show as well. But yeah. uh, that part, at least, that that felt like something I, you know, that's, it's, a big, it's a big thing for me. You know, putting up art in my, even today, in my own home. I'm taking rulers, pencils, everything to be very symmetrical. Otherwise, I'm, I'm getting anxious. And that's been that, I've been that way since a small kid. I used to take my Star Wars toys and arrange them in height order. My books are in height order and color order. And my parents understood that why I'd gotten upset. And I'm guessing so did the ABA technician. But they just didn't care because they said that's, that's an irrational thing to do, right? That kids shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't do it. And you need to understand that. There are consequences for your arrogance or whatever for ripping it down, and also consequences for that anger. Even though that, that anger was caused by something that's not that I was in no control. Now I love to talk about coaching for autistics uh, due to my work with uh, Autism Personal Coach. So you yourself are a coach for other autistic folks. I'd love to know what is it about coaching that made you kind of gravitate towards doing that? So yeah, it's an awesome question. Because it's not something I often think about myself. Kind of, I never sort of planned to do this. I worked in the business sector for 13 years. Started, I worked at a few different companies, started a few of my own businesses. 
And from that time in 2010 where I got involved in the community more, I was recognized as a person who was good at organizing and I don't want to say good at business, but good at you know navigating the business world. And that was when I started mentoring other autistic people and whether you are, they're working in companies or entrepreneurs or self-employed freelancers and mentoring them on business and organizing how to actually open up a company, how to manage your finances, how to deal on a sales call, right? People think autistic people can't do sales, but it's very untrue. And I started mentoring people and I started meeting people and that was something I did for a long time for you know 10 years on a volunteer and as a fun basis started meeting students from my university that I, that I attended through their neurodiversity program of also mentoring students and speaking with them and helping them out and also it was also helping me you know I was living in a few different countries during my career and you know connecting with other expats who were dealing with the same kind of things I was really helpful then during the pandemic I decided that you know maybe there's something to doing that, you know, more as a proper job and something, you know, to do it more full-time basis. I wish that, you know, coaching is one of these things that there's so many life coaches out there. And just like there's so many doctors, there's so many psychologists and psychiatrists and occupational therapists, but there's not a lot of autistic ones. And I thought, how amazing is it that you can go out there and I can speak to somebody and I know what they're going through, and I can help them. And I remember looking for my own coach, and I came across came across you, of course, and a few others. You know, there's not a lot out there. It's such a necessary thing. You know, most autistic folks aren't seeing a therapist, and if they are seeing a therapist, often they're seeing a therapist not for therapy, but for kind of like life coaching. And therapists and occupational therapists, psychotherapists, and social workers are sort of they've sort of filled in this gap in this life coaching space, right? Not all of us, I mean, I don't that's that nobody needs therapy, but you know, a lot of us just need help with life and how to do with you know, everyday situations and affirmation and talking things through. And, you know, the community is great. The community kind of serves as a big Uber coach, right? But some people want one-to-one. And I wish I had had that. So I wanted to do that more. And... You know, there's so many people who want this, and there's so few of us who are actually doing it. And you have coaches out there who mean well and might not be autistic, and they've been not to say that they're better or worse, right? But you know, they don't, there's a there's a piece of that that's missing, right? And that I thought as an actual autistic person dealing with autistic issues myself, that's I mean, that's the best experience you can have to helping other people, and. That's what I started doing. We see, maybe there's, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there aren't so many people who want that. And I found that that was the case. There were a lot of people who wanted to do it, and it's been great. And I feel myself super, not that it's about me, but feel super affirmed that, like, I feel good helping other people, right? Because we want to help people with humans. We're social by nature, even though people have to say that we're not social. But, like, we thrive on community. And through the community and through coaching, I just feel so much more connected, not just to the community and to my clients, but to myself, which is like, super awesome. Now, I'm, I'm always fascinated in learning about the autistic spirit experience in different cultures and in different countries. I'm here in the United States. 
Um, now, I know you've lived in France, the UK, Greece, and Israel, to name a few countries. So I'm really fascinated to learn, did you see many, have you seen many differences in living in these different countries, maybe specifically focusing on your autistic identity? Oh, yeah. I mean, so all those countries, as anybody listening will know, those are all very, very different countries for anybody. But as an autistic person, I don't know where to begin. I mean, I guess we can start with the UK, the UK being... I know there's there's listeners from all over the world, including the UK, so I don't mean to uh, use the US as a reference, but both you and I are American. So the UK is the closest to the US in that experience, but still very different. People think that when Americans move to the UK or British people move to the US or Canada or Canadians to the US, that, oh, you know, it's just the language. It's the same. It's not that, it's not that different. We all like watching the same TV shows and we all like the same things and we eat the same unhealthy food and but it's actually it's not true there's huge cultural differences between all of the anglo countries and in particular regarding autism so i'd say as far as the autistic community goes in the uk it's pretty well developed like the us not as much but it's out there people know you know autistic people know that there's a community out there they're aware of the neurodiversity movement. They're aware of being, you know, accepting, not looking for cures and not necessarily looking for treatments and being proud and being public and speaking. You have a lot of different conferences and organizations which are advocacy work, doing advocacy work for autistic people. As far as British people in general, they're aware of autism. There's a lot of laws protecting autistic people in the workplace that are great in some ways better than in the U.S., in a lot of ways worse. Not to say that the U.K. is an ideal place from that regard. It's a lot of hardship, and I don't want to make it sound like a paradise. It's not, but there are laws protecting it. You can be an autistic person working in a government job or in a large law firm, and that's not uncommon like it is in some other countries. Not to say there isn't work. It's something visible, and people see that. As far as accommodations go, the U.K. is where the Sunflower Lanyard, I don't know if you're familiar with that, started. Sunflower Lanyard, you know, so you ever go to an airport and you have to explain to people, hey, I'm autistic, I need a little bit of extra assistance here and there, and people go, what, what are you talking about, autism? No, go on that line over there. No, go over there. I don't know what you're talking about. You look fine to me, or you don't look autistic. So activists in the UK understood this issue and created something called the Sunflower Lanyard, which is just put on your neck and it has a card that says, I'm autistic. And at every UK airport, the people at the airport have been trained by this charity. If they see that, there's no questions asked. You don't need to explain to anybody. You walk up to the line that you need to use or you need to go anywhere, and no one's going to say anything to you. They're going to help you. It's, it's all silent. They understand. Every airport in the U.K. uses that. They've actually expanded to some other airports around the world and in the U.S., including JFK. And it doesn't work as well. Uh, not everybody at the airport is as trained. In the U.S., but some of them are, so I don't want to want to slog anyone off. But it, it's expanding, and it's a fantastic program. And so I like that. And, and that started there. And people are are willing to to learn. You know, it's not you don't have this closed off. Oh, autistic people are X, and we're Y, and we don't want to interact. You know, people are genuinely. I, in my experience, again, I don't want to speak for everybody because I know I know I'm on Twitter and I see how people are struggling and they. They feel that there isn't any acceptance, but at least 
my case in London and Manchester, had a, had a positive experience and I, I didn't feel ever in a situation besides an individual kind of context that being autistic was a bad thing, a negative thing, something to be ashamed of, I felt validated. So that's that's the UK. The hazards issues also, and ABA is a big thing there. I want to cure autism, that's still a lot of the talk. You have you know, their equivalent of Autism Speaks. All of these things exist, so I don't want to say that it's paradise, but I found it in many ways as progressive, and in some ways more progressive than the US. Israel, very, very different situation. So Israel has a, Israel's very good at diagnosis of autism, a lot of autism research. And, you know, I think, well, the world average is one in 70 something people is autistic. I think that's the number. In Israel, it's more like one in 50. Not because there's more autistic people in Israel, but because they're better at diagnosing it. It's something that the doctors are more familiar with, psychologists are more familiar with. And there's a, there's a huge amount of awareness, a huge amount of awareness. You have TV shows. If you're familiar with this TV show on Amazon now, it's a show about three autistic roommates. I don't remember what it's called. So that's actually an Israeli, that was remade in the U.S., but that's originally an Israeli show that, that premiered five or six years ago. But in Israel, it was with, not with autistic actors. The U.S. was with autistic actors. And so there's a, autism is something that everybody in Israel is aware of. You know, Israel has a military draft. Autistic people are drafted into the army for jobs not everybody serves. It's not a barrier to entry. Israel has a huge tech scene, which, you know, a lot of autistic people find employment in. And in that regard, autism is, it's not something that's unknown to the public. That being said, there's a huge stigma of being autistic in Israel. While there's a lot of people who are open-minded and, you know, believe, you know, what neurodiversity is all about and acceptance is all about. More of it is about finding a cure. More of it is saying that, you know, I'm a person with autism. You know, in, in Hebrew, you would more likely hear someone say it's a person with autism than an autistic person, even amongst many autistic, not all, but a lot, and especially with the parent community. Having an autistic child is something that is seen as negative. And they, you know, they, you know, you see, you go into one of these groups, and the parents say, "I wish you were different." I still believe my kid can do X, even though they're autistic. This kind of speaking, and it is seen as as something less. You know, from a from a right standpoint, you know, autistic people are entitled to 100% disability in Israel, which is good from a standpoint of of that you're getting the rights, the benefits that one needs, but also with how the society views it, that you're essentially kind of useless, whether or not that's true. And obviously everybody is useful and there's no such thing as being useless, but this is this is an actual and Israeli measure of percentages of how quote unquote useful or useless you are. And that's a problem. And you don't have a huge community of really outspoken, proud autistic people. They exist a bit on social media, but it's not something you, you don't see people on TV when you see someone an autistic activists on TV, it's more of a curiosity than something that's very commonplace, I would say. And so, um, so on the one hand, no, I wouldn't say it's uncomfortable to be autistic in Israel, but it's also not, don't feel as validated as many other places. That being said, the community is strong and they do look out for each other and people want to make a difference, but you know, there's the social stigma, there's the government stigma, things like this. Then Greece is, uh, I would say, is also very different. You don't have a lot of awareness of autism. A lot of people don't know what autism is in Greece. 
wasn't really talked about until the 90s. You know, the first autistic schools opened up in the 2000s. There's not a lot of services out there. People don't talk about it. They don't want to. It's not a. It's not a really big public subject. I never really came across a lot of autistic activists, autistic people. Yes, that you meet through all these sort of social media, like everywhere, that happen to be Greek, but not a sort of organized. And there is an organization, but it's not something that's local. And I would say, of all of the of the countries, that was probably the place that is least aware of autism. And people were genuinely open to hearing, but they have a lot of stigma, like everywhere. You know, and I want to point out also about Israel is that the education, both in Israel and in Greece, you know, the government they have schools for autistic people, as well as programs within public schools of integrating the classes, both depending on one situation and support needs. So, in that, I don't want to make it seem like autistic people are thrown to the side in either of those countries, but it's not publicly as an autistic person. Autistic adult living in the country, not something necessarily that you would talk about, bring bring to one's attention. And then France is, you know, where I live now, and I say that's very different from all of them. France is an interesting situation that you have a lot of a, a high rate of diagnosis, but a very very large stigma, very large. And this is for a whole variety of reasons, but the biggest one being that psychoanalysis is still sort of the underlying legal framework that psychiatry in France uses, specifically Lacanian psychiatry, which which views autism as a fake thing, uh, something created by the quote-unquote refrigerator mother. And if you're a doctor over the age of 50 in France, that's probably how you were educated. So that doesn't mean that that's what you think, but that's, that's a common way. And autism is highly stigmatized in France. And so many Google autism in France, you'll see lots of stories of the state taking away kids, institutionalizing kids, not a lot of rights for autistic people, a lot of people in the neurodiversity movement being shut down for being called aggressive and against medical standards, and it's highly reliant still on this psychoanalysis view of autism and the medical model of autism and disability, and autistic people are always put into sort of not even separate classrooms in the main school, but separate schools, institutions. There's a lot of these institutions that, you know, that send the, they say they're doing good things and sending the people in these schools to work, study, quote unquote, where they work. And they can, France can talk about how they're doing good things and they're working, but it's more or less kind of forced labor to showing things. Don't hear talk of autism very often or neurodiversity in general in that regard it's not great france has been censured by both the eu and the un twice in the last 20 years over how autistic people's rights are represented the current president president macron has said that he's trying to do things there's a big case of autistic child being taken away from the mother and i don't remember all the exact details but this this brought it to the national attention, and now they've started all these new sort of working groups in the various departments, which is the equivalent of the state in France, to get autistic people talking with the government, not just the parents, but autistic people themselves, and try to create better supports and things like that. But it's very slow, and it's still very coming from this let's cure autism model, right? I'm a person with autism versus I'm an autistic person.
there are a few major autistic activists who write books and have even popular books to sort of get people to understand our situation. And it's cool, but, you know, France is a big country, so I mean, I mean, imagine to have four or five activists, it's not enough. But French people, especially cities in Paris, in my experience, are very, very open to learning about autism. And I wouldn't say, like, yes, there's a stigma, but a lot of people understand, okay, there's a stigma, but maybe I don't get all of this because they do, you know, one of these books, you know, there's an author, an activist called Julia Dushes, who wrote a comic book called Invisible Differences, it's been translated into English, about being a late-diagnosed woman. She's also written other books, and she's an activist in the autism world. And a lot of people know her, and they go, well, I read that book, so like, obviously there's something there. And when I introduce myself as an autistic person in France, I don't get people recoiling or saying, oh, but you don't look autistic. That's something that I don't really experience. People say, oh, really? Tell me about that. I, I never met an autistic person before. I don't think I've met an autistic person before. And as, which is weird because as a society, autism fits this strange sort of place. But all of my personal experience have been quite positive. And autistic people are willing to reach out and talk. You know, I, I organize a group of other autistic expats who are in France and we get together and people are happy to be public about it and speak about it and to meet other people and to socialize. And I've never had, I never felt this thing, which I thought is really awesome because I'm used to feeling that often. And maybe it's because I'm older, maybe it's because I'm, I'm a coach and I'm, I'm active in these things, but I feel for, it's a country that, where people want to learn and where people are accepting. And I mean, I think that's the best way. That's how we change the, the paradigm, right? Is that people, obviously it's not only on us to educate everybody else, right? We need allies to also educate, but that's part of it. And I like that. I like being able that there's a receptive, there's another side that wants to hear what we're saying. You were saying that, you know, you have a group for expats, and, you know, one of the interesting things that you offer in your coaching is in terms of expats and immigrants is that, that that may be moving to a new country. What would you say are some of the most important things for autistics to consider when maybe moving to a new country or a new culture? So you need to be aware that a new country isn't just a new country. It's a whole new world. We as Americans are notorious for going to other countries and thinking that everything works like it does in America. And we can talk about that forever. But every country has its own culture. And I know that sounds so obvious. You go, oh, of course, Matthew. But whether it's the kind of slang or inside jokes or songs that were one-hit wonders at random times that everybody knows or how to speak to somebody at McDonald's or how to greet someone walk into a shop or how to buy a newspaper. Yes, how to buy a newspaper. There's that cha- That's different in every country in the world. And we as autistic people thrive on, a lot of us, at least in my experience, thrive on that sort of being the same, not changing things up. We want that consistency. So moving to a new country, you get rid of everything that you know from the country that you're from. Plus there's a new language element added to it. Plus there's new body language things. There's all these little social cues that we've spent our whole life trying to learn and understand. And some of us haven't even done that. And now you're in a new country and everything you know, out the window. Give me an example of something. This applies whether you're holistic or autistic. In France, 
When you walk into a store, you need to say good morning or good afternoon to the person in the store and ask them how they are. And not in a sort of a passing way, like, oh, hello, good morning, but like in, in a sincere way. Well, if you were to do that in New York, they might look at you funny. If you walked into, you know, a random bodega in New York and said, good morning, sir, how are you this morning? <laughs> but in, right, in New York, that would be strange. But in France, if you didn't do that, you are being incredibly rude. And now, so that's hard for anybody. Now imagine being autistic and having to navigate all these little rules. In France, for example, in August, most things are closed. In Paris, everything's closed. You know, the store where you go to go buy your ice cream every day after school or after work, you go there, it's closed. Your whole routine is out the window. Why? It is. Randomly, in the middle of the week, everything will be closed. Why? Because they decided to take a day off. And on Mondays, in certain towns, things are closed. Why? That's the way it is. And you have to get used to these kind of things. And there's a million things, right? There's, you could write 500-page books on that. So being an autistic person going to a new country, you have to learn the culture, but you also have to learn the sort of all these new social rules again. And that can create sensory overload, right? That can cause you a lot of stress, a lot of aggravation. You might not even know how to do that. You might not even speak the language, right? That's like all those things apply if you're going from the U.S. to Canada. Now imagine if you're going from the U.S. to Spain or to Germany or to Italy. Totally different thing. You have so many new things that you have to learn. And that can overwhelm you. And that's happened to me. And then you go into burnout. But guess what? Autistic people move to new countries all the time for a lot of different reasons. Whether it's for work, whether it's to explore, whether it's to... Who knows? And you need to do these things. And I've seen it because I've met autistic people in a lot of different countries. And I've seen them getting that burnout really fast because it's super overwhelming. Nobody ever wants to admit failure, right? But it's a real thing, you know, to be able to speak with other expats. And that's why I started this group in Paris. Other expats to get together and just talk about stuff and your experiences, right? To be validated, to understand. You know, it's more than just socializing. But socializing is fun, important, but you're all going through this similar kind of thing and that sort of hive mind and hive support system is really important. So often we'll talk about um, the autistic experience and we'll talk about the challenges of being autistic or skills that someone might need to learn. But to me, there's nowhere near of an emphasis placed on uh, autistic joy. I'd love to hear maybe how um, that joy has shaped your life or even through coaching your clients, how you've supported people in that process. Yeah, it's a great question. Autistic joy is one of these things that I didn't know. I, I, I read about it in lots of books and blogs and things, and I never kind of understood what it meant. It's like, what is autistic joy? How do I find that, right? Because I think oftentimes, being autistic, people like to talk about the negatives, right? How do you deal with this? How do you overcome this challenge? How do you fix this, right? It's always these negative words. And like you said, and you, we internalize that, right? We think about, oh, how it's difficult for us to do this, how our sensory overload is like that, how our relationships are troubled because of all these various things, how school was like this, how work, you know? And so I was really thinking, what, is this, what does this joy mean, right? And I understood it's the things that take you out of that, right? I don't want to say dissociate. It's not dissociating. It's actually coming in 
touch more with yourself. And finding those little things in life that bring you joy. Like we don't have to overthink this concept of autistic joy. It's those things that give you joy and help you regulate yourself and be happy and get in touch with yourself. And it's not one feeling or one thing. And for everybody, it's going to be something different. I guess if you ask me what it is for me, it's this idea of pure awe and wonder and grandeur of life and taking a step back and going, you know? And it reminds me of, there's a chapter. So, you know, I was studying to be a rabbi. That was what I wanted to do. I was in college and I studied for the rabbi. And there was a theologian called Joshua Abraham Heschel. don't know if you're familiar with him or other listeners. Who was a liberal Jewish theologian, philosopher, teacher. He was a friend of Martin Luther King and, and marched with him in Selma, a civil rights activist during the, the 60s. And he wrote in his book, Man in Search of God, the following quote, which I have over here, because it really, for me, when I, when I thought about it, thinking about autistic joy, and I thought back to this, you know, which was a really powerful for me 20 years ago. And he says, the meaning of awe is to realize that life takes place under wide horizons, horizons that range beyond the span of an individual life or even the life of a nation, a generation, or an era. Awe enables us to perceive in the world intimations of the divine, to sense in small things the beginning of infinite significance, to sense the ultimate and the common and the simple, to feel in the rush of the passing and the stillness of the internal. Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement, Get up in the morning, look at the world, and take nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be alive is to be amazed. And for me, that's it, right? Like, when I'm going outside on the beach and I hear the waves and I have the salt in my nose and I'm physically grounded to the earth and with nature and I have my mouth wide open looking up the sky and just being like, that's that autistic joy for me, is being able to connect to myself. And everybody can find that thing that they tap into. For some people, it's engaging in their special interests. For other people, it's being outside. For other people, it's, I don't know, everybody has their thing. You know, the other day, I, I went on Twitter and I asked people on Twitter, you know, what does autistic joy mean to them? And I got something like 400 responses. And... <laughs> Every, which is great about the autistic community, right? Everyone was radically different. Like what I just said for me is joy and like, and me connecting to nature and to those pleasant moments in life help me connect to myself and to the world. But for other people, it means something completely different and that's awesome. One person wrote, an intense childlike magical happiness that manifests from internal interests. Beautiful. Another one said, I just jump up and down and wave and clap, and I do my happy dance, and that grounds me. I sat and looked at a beautiful bookcase for hours today with the biggest smile on my face. Pure joy. For me, autistic joy is when I have something important I can do that is valued by others, and they thrive off of me as well, and it's my superpower. Someone said, for me, autistic joy is feeling extremely safe, happy, and complete listening to my favorite music. Else said, it feels like electricity running through my body. I don't know what causes it, but I love it. Another one of my favorite ones was it's mechanical pencils. <laughs> I love mechanical pencils too. But the, that common thing is that thing that 
takes you out of all those negative things of having to be fixed and having to deal and having to handle all these negative words. I think that makes you say, you know what? Being autistic isn't a curse. It's not a disorder. It's it's me. And I'm taking happiness. It doesn't make you necessarily be something autistic, quote unquote. It's you taking joy in your own life because we're taught and conditioned from a young age that you shouldn't. And I think looking at being autistic as a positive thing is a huge thing. And, you know, not for everybody looks at it that way. And that's okay. I'm not invalidating anybody how they feel. But for, I think, a lot of us, most of us, we love ourselves. We love our lives. And, yes, there are challenges, but there's also a lot of joy and a lot of awesome things. And I think that key to happiness is tapping into what those things are for you. Instead of focusing on the negative, focus on the positive. Absolutely. And there's so, there's so many things that bring me joy, including uh, this uh, podcast where I get to talk to uh, amazing people like yourself. Yeah, you uh, come with a treat. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Matthew, be, beyond this uh, interview, um, how can people learn more about you and your coaching services? Well, you can. So, I'm on Twitter, which is my most active uh, social media, where I'm autistic coach underscore. And as far as learning more about me and my services, Go on to my website, which is theautisticcoach.com, T-H-E, autisticcoach.com. And that's where I am, and I, you, know, you can read about what I do and all the different sort of kind of coaching services, whether it's you know, general life coaching or you are an autistic entrepreneur who wants to start a business and needs to figure out how to get going. Uh, if you're an expat, like we spoke about, you know, those are my sort of three specialties. And we do, I do individual coaching, I do group coaching, also some session work, uh, where we talk about special interests and different things. So I have a lot of different things going on, and love to meet you. Well, Matthew, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for uh, making the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Matthew for the conversation. To learn more about Matthew, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides extraordinary support for those to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our customized coaching? If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories. It would be very much appreciated. Till next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.